0: 30 for 30 here at Mendham Hills. It is 40 for 40. Facebook right now is scrambling to pull us down off of the internet because of the uh, copyright infringement. Here's what we're doing. Um, We're calling it 40 for 40. Uh, It's because I want to provide for you um, a a 40-day journey. I know people throw this stuff out there all the time, okay? I got the hokiness of it. But a 40-day journey that I think could be transformative for you. Uh, 40 for 40, because I want to give you a unique opportunity for spiritual and personal growth, uh, and I want to tie it to the Lent season, a season of 40 days where historically the church has focused on spiritually preparing our hearts for Easter, the holiest day of the year. And I came across what I think to be a pretty unique resource I want to offer to all of you. Now, a lot of our small groups are doing this. You could still get in a small group. Go to the Engage tab on the website. Go to Group Finder. You can see what the groups are studying. Several of them are doing a new study called The the Good Book. Now, they're studying a video curriculum. What this is, is this is a 40-day devotional book. And I don't pump books up here, and we're selling it for the same price we got it for, so we're not making any money on this. But this is really interesting to me. Here's why. I, I understand that the Bible, for folks that aren't familiar with it, heck, for folks that are familiar with it, is intimidating. I mean, it's big, the words are old, the stories can be, if we're honest, confusing at best and troubling at worst. And so where do I start? How do I understand? And maybe you've said year after year. I mean, how many of you said, this is the year I'm going to go through the Bible in a year? And then, you know, by the time you get to now, you're like, crud, I died in Leviticus, you know? If this is your faith journey, then I think this Lent study could be for you. Uh, This book, this devotional called The Good Book, takes what the author is. Kyle Eidelman is one of them, who I I like a lot. They take what they believe are the 40 most critical chapters in all of the Bible, and they tie them together under what they believe to be the eight big ideas in the Scripture, and, and put together this wonderful compendium of our faith story. From creation to Jesus' return, you get a bigger understanding of our faith. And I think in 40 days, uh, you'll have not just more knowledge about what it is you believe, but I think your hearts might be changed a little bit by it too. And so I would love for you to do this. If you're not in a small group, you can do this on your own. We've got a few of these books out there. You can pick these up on Amazon. The digital copy is, I think, $9.99. I think these copies are uh, $15 to $17 with shipping and all the rest. It's a pretty nice book. 40 days, you'll get a broad overview of, of the entire Christian faith. I think it's pretty unique, uh, and I've I've read a lot of this. It's very good. I'd encourage you to pick it up. Now, with that said, there's also, by the way, a kids' version. So if you wanted to do something with your kids during Lent for the next 40 days, to go through some of these stories with the kids, just a great opportunity. Now, what I'm going to do every Sunday uh, for the next, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this for about four weeks. We're going to pause for Easter, and then we're going to pick it up again and probably go another four weeks. So this will probably be eight weeks in total. And what I'm going to do on Sunday is share with with you what I think is the unique story of the week. And so that's where we're going to go, and that's where we're diving in. And if you want to go take a look at this or buy one, go to the Welcome Center on your way out. Or pick one up on Amazon, and they'll deliver it right to your house. Let's get started with week one. You've got, by the way, we've got about 50 days to Easter. Lent is 40 days. The book's 40 days. So you've got about 10 days to decide. I'll just keep guilting you into this over the next 10 days. Here's the deal, guys. One of the important keys to understanding, quote-unquote, the Bible, because the Bible... Some people are like, oh, it's, who wrote it? The Bible is not really the Bible. In fact, that title didn't get put on all of these books until some time way after these books were written. It's, it's a collection of books written by many authors over several thousand years. And so it, in order to understand the Bible, one of the things that you have to understand is when you get into each of the stories, that it wasn't written into a vacuum. The events, the writings, were inspired by God, but they're written by humans who were living in and influenced by the world and the culture around them. And in understanding the world and the culture which surrounds the stories, it's there where we gain context and understanding for sometimes things that are just so mind-blowing that we just totally missed because we didn't understand the context into which it was written. So what I want to do this morning... And this this sermon was a lot of work, but it's so fascinating to me and fun. I want to look at one of those truths put into context today. I'm going to share with you a truth. It is in chapter 1 of Genesis. It is so mind-blowing and complex. Theologians to this day are still wrestling with what it means. And the world is still trying to figure out what its implications are. And so are you. The implications of this truth get played out in your life... I'm telling you, you will see this within an hour of leaving here today. This truth will come back to you, and you're gonna go, I don't have to figure out now what this means in, relative, in, in relation to that. So here we go starting in Genesis, chapter 1. Right in, in, in the first book, in what we know as the Bible, it, it's the first book in the Torah, it's the book of origins, it was written within a culture, and when you understand the culture to which it was written, it brings context. Here's the culture. Israel was surrounded by other cultures. There was, the, uh, there was Mesopotamia, that was where you had the, the Sumerians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. There were Canaanites, there were Egyptians... And every country and culture around Israel had gods. Not just one god, they had many gods. They all had religions. And they had this common hierarchical way of looking at life. Because in each of these cultures and each of these religions, and all of these religions were polytheistic, what they believed was that whoever was reigning as king was and would often claim to be God himself. In ancient Mesopotamian culture, the king was treated as divine or semi-divine. Now, this sounds kind of silly until you go and look at tyrants in the world today, where in many of these cultures, these same tyrants in, in countries all over the world today are still claiming that they're divine, that they're sent by God or indeed themselves are God. And so the Bible is written, at least in Genesis, into a culture where there is polytheism everywhere and the kings in all of these countries are claiming to be divine or semi-divine. The king was understood to have been made and existed. He was, in a sense, the essence or the image of the God who created him. Now, the Hebrew word for what the king claimed was a word called Salem, the T is somewhat silent, You're supposed to say it a little bit, but I'm not good enough to do it. But essentially, Salem was was the word for image. And the king was thought to be made in the Salem of God. This was the dividing point between the king and everybody else. The king was Salem. Everybody else was something. In fact, most people were just peasants and slaves. And peasants and slaves, not only were they not made in the image of God, it was thought in most of those religions that the peasants and the slaves were the product of inferior gods. And so the king, because he was divine, the king in all of these religions becomes the mediator through which blessing of the gods flowed. It was the king who ruled with sovereignty. It was the king who could tell people what to do, where to go, how to get there. It was the king who could decide for everyone else what was right and what was wrong. Now, Salem is also the word for idols or idol images. And all these regions and religions had these kings, and these kings controlled what was the next hierarchical level down, the priests and so it was the king controlling the priests which permitted access to God. The only way to heaven, the only way to God was through the priest and through, through the king, who is thought to be made in the image of God. Actually, this even carries on to Jesus' day. They have found coins from Jesus' day where it says, Caesar is Lord. That's why the Christians started going, No, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. Caesar isn't divine, Jesus is divine. But in the, into the culture in which Genesis was written, it was thought the king was the Salem of God. Now, if you're going to rule, think this through. If you're going to rule in an ancient world where there is no printing press, no books, no newspapers, no internet, no CNN, how is it that you remind people of who is king, of who's in charge? Well, they did it in some fashion the same way we still do it today. In fact, you see it in our, if I go, if you, have you been to the post, anybody been to the post office lately? It's such a joy to go to the post office. Every time I leave, I'm just inspired by the, uh, the way in which everything flows so seamlessly. But if you, I'm going to get an email about that too. Um, but if you go to the post office, you ever look over in the corner and there's pictures in the corner on the wall. Does anybody know who the pictures are of? There's a picture of the president of the United States, usually, the governor of the state, and the postmaster, because they want to remind you who's in charge. Now, if I was running that particular facility, I probably wouldn't want my picture associated with running, the way things are going, but nevertheless, those things are placed up there. Uh, Why do we, you know, we name bridges all the time the same way. We We just renamed, you know, the Mario Cuomo Bridge now, and the, the Triborough Bridge just became the RFK Bridge. We still do the same thing. We create images, and we place them all over the place because we want everybody to know who's in charge. That's what they did in the ancient world. These statues of the rulers that were spread all over were the Salem. They would do this just so everyone knew and remembered This is the king. This is what the king looks like. If you've seen some of these when archaeologists have pulled them up, you never see a a meek, frail-looking king. These guys are all ripped and jacked, right? Because the the king wants you to know how powerful he is, how strong he is. You're a peasant. You're a slave. He's the king. He's made in the image of God. He mattered. You didn't. He had authority, you don't. He has power, look at you, you're weak. And it's into that world that out of nowhere, this had never been conceived of before, especially in a polytheistic world, this creation account of Genesis shows up, which is different than any other creation account. And it starts with mind-blowing, earth-shattering news. Then God said, Let us, pause for a second. Isn't this fascinating? Genesis chapter 1, long before Jesus comes on the scene, just the hint already that God is, the Godhead doesn't exist singularly, but exists in plural form. The Godhead, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity. Chapter 1 of Genesis, isn't that fascinating? Back to the story. At least for me, it's interesting. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind, everybody, IN HIS OWN IMAGE, IN THE IMAGE OF GOD HE CREATED THEM, MALE AND FEMALE HE CREATED THEM. IN FACT, JUST A COUPLE OF CHAPTERS LATER, BECAUSE THIS IS SUCH A NEW CONCEPT TO ALL OF of MANKIND, SO UNHEARD OF, IT'S REPEATED AGAIN IN GENESIS CHAPTER 5. WHEN GOD CREATED MANKIND, HE MADE THEM IN THE LIKENESS OF GOD. WHAT'S ALSO INTERESTING IS HOW THEY CONTINUE TO STRESS THIS. HE CREATED MALE AND FEMALE AND BLESSED THEM. MEN ARE MADE IN THE IMAGE OF GOD, AND FOR CENTURIES WE HAVE BEEN REALLY GOOD AT MAKING SURE WOMEN UNDERSTOOD THAT. CAN I GET AN AMEN? Amen. BUT THE TRUTH IS, MEN AND WOMEN ARE CREATED IN THE IMAGE OF GOD. THERE'S A WHOLE SERMON THERE. I'M NOT GOING TO GET INTO IT RIGHT NOW. THE WORD FOR IMAGE IN THE HEBREW IS THAT SAME WORD WE TALKED ABOUT, "salem." IN THE IMAGE OF GOD, GOD CREATED ALL HUMAN BEINGS. I WANT TO REPEAT THAT, BECAUSE YOU'VE HEARD IT, BUT YOU'VE NEVER REALLY PAUSED TO THINK ABOUT IT. IN THE IMAGE OF GOD, GOD CREATED ALL HUMAN BEINGS, NOT JUST THE KING. The statement by the writer of Genesis is the single most world-changing statement about human dignity, worth, and equality that has ever been recorded. We all still live, whether someone thinks of himself as a believer or not, banking on the truth and the change that this statement made in the human race's understanding of itself. Imagine what this did to the hearts of peasants and slaves. To be told that it wasn't just the king, but they who were created in the Salem in the image of the one great God, male, female, slaves, free, peasants, everybody created in the image, with the image of God. Now, this is really interesting, okay? At least I think it is, and I'm kind of a nerd, I get that, but... Here's what church tradition holds. Church tradition holds. The the Genesis creation stories were told around campfires for a long period of time, but eventually they were written down in written form and, and, and recorded, most people believe, at least tradition is, by Moses. Now Moses, if you know his story, in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, Moses has this encounter with God where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And that, those were the laws that would govern the relationship between God and this new nation, Israel. This relationship that they would have. That would, and here's the interesting thing about Israel. Unlike every other nation that surrounded it, Israel had no king. Interesting. Everybody else has a king, and that king is divine and made in the image of God. Israel has no king. Here's what's even more interesting. This same Moses that wrote that God told him, that all that wrote the, the, the truth that, that men are created in the image of God, Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments from God. The Second Commandment says, you're not to make any images of God's. Now, why? Why was Israel told not to make any images of God? Well, for one, it was to combat idolatry, Because we have a real hard time not trying to reduce God down to a created thing and worshiping it. But secondly, and I think this is just as important, maybe more important. God did not want Israel to create Salem. God did not need Israel to create Salem. God did not want them to spread images of him all over the world. Do you know why? Because God had already made images of himself. You and I are the Salem of God. He doesn't need pictures in the post office. Now, he's got me, and oftentimes in the post office, I'm not doing a good job of reflecting the glory of God. That's another story. See, our lives were to be and do what the images of the kings all over the ancient world did. We were supposed to be living, breathing reflections of what God looks like, what God acts like, how God rules. When people see and experience us on Route 80 in traffic, they were supposed to understand how God reflects into traffic on Route 80. That was the original plan anyway. (laughs) See, theologians are still trying to argue this about what it means. I know you've probably never thought about it, and I wrestled with it for a week, and it's it's still rolling around my mind. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now, most of the time, the argument focuses on what makes us different from everything else in creation. Why, since we're in the image of God and nothing else is in, in all of creation is in the image of God, why are we different than apes and monkeys and dogs and cats? And, and of course, when, when you teach this concept, invariably somebody goes, well, if we have this and we're made in the image of God and animals aren't, what about my dog, you know, moose, is moose going to be in heaven with me? To that, I would answer, of course, dogs are going to be in heaven. That's pure, right out of the Bible. There won't be any cats, but there will be lots of dogs running loose in heaven. And so, see, I think there's lots to be written about what it means to be made in the image of God. Some religious sects, some Christian religious sects, have actually said it means that we physically resemble God. I know I've looked in the mirror once or twice and thought that to myself, that, let's take a look at you, big boy. You remind me of god (laughs) clearly that taking one look at me you're going dear god i hope not um (laughs) clearly that is not what this means god is not limited to the physical realm he's so much bigger than that in fact in john the book of john the, the, the the john's account of his time with jesus john records that god is spirit he is not physically he's not a physical being And so since most people understand that being made in the image of God doesn't mean we look like God, most other people then debate, the debate centers around what is called the substantive view. Which means that we are, because we're in the image of God, we're spiritually or psychologically, we resemble God. And and, and to do, this argument takes the form of, well, we're different, we're made in the image of God, and we're different than animals because we are rational, moral, creative, relational. We have the capacity for love and reflection and faith, reason. We have a self-conscious. And I think those are interesting truths, and I think there's something to it. But I don't think that contains all of it either. In Latin, the image of God is called the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, the image of God, can't simply be related to those things. These things sociologists sometimes call preferences. We we have value because we have have preferences. Uh, But in our youngest days and in our oldest days, these things might not actually be true of us. We might not have some of those capacities. Yet... The Imago Dei exists from conception till death. We bear the image of God. So it also has to mean more than capacity. Let me give you two things I think this means. Here's here's the first. And these are incredibly practical. The first is that we are made in the image of God. The writer of Genesis is saying... That just as the king would place images of himself all around so everybody knew who the ruler was, what what the king looked like, how the king acted, that is what we were to be. There's a pretty famous theologian named N.T. Wright. And he puts it this way. He says, God places his own image in human beings into the world so the world can see who its ruler is. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. It's not about having this quality or that quality. It's not about whether if you have reason or free will. It's about your role, the role that God has for you in the com- cosmic scheme of things. You were made, listen, the image of God means that you're made to reign under God's character, with God's power, in God's stead for the benefit of all the earth so that all of the earth can know who reigns it. You're made in the image of God. God's plan is to graciously share his power by creating a community of loving people who exercise dominion through his strength, marked by his goodness. This is who you are meant to be. Now, he goes on, he describes this analogy, which is kind of a beautiful thing. He describes understanding the image of God for us as as though there was a mirror. Now, I wanted to have a really good um, prop for you guys this morning, so I was trying to take a mirror, and uh, I have daughters, and so if you have daughters, you have mirrors. And uh, I went into my one daughter's room, and uh, I went to grab the mirror out of her room. Well, the mirror was so big, this is a true story, I couldn't get it into my car. I wrestled with it in the driveway this morning. It's now in the garage, so don't tell them. Uh, I'll have to get it back into their room. But I couldn't get it in my car. So I had to go get a mirror that was more to my liking, which is this. Um, I try not to look at the five-time magnification because that's really insulting. This, you know, this is my mirror. And what N.T. Wright was saying is, uh, I'll read it to you first. He said, God reigns over the earth through these little human creatures made in His image who bring the good rule and, des- and reign down to earth. And in turn, the glory, the joy, the gratitude, the goodness wells up and humans give it words and turn its praise and offer it back to God. We are created to reflect God's rule down to the earth and reflect the earth's joy up to God. He gave an example of when he was a little boy, he was sick in his room and his mother couldn't be with him constantly. She had to be in the kitchen. And so she fastened a mirror in the hallway so that, oh, look at that, the Billings. So um, he, they could, they could, he could see his mom and his mom could see him. Well, being made in the image of God, essentially what we're to be doing is reflecting in the mirror, seeing God's reign, reflecting it to people on earth, and then through the working out of all of that, that is all welling up into unity and praise and love, and then bringing that back and reflecting that back to God in worship. That was the concept of what it meant to be created in the image of God, to bear the image of God, to reflect the holy reign of God to earth, to care for its creation, particularly human beings, as God would want them cared for, and then to gather all that goodness and delight and offer it back to God. Your destiny was to contribute, to be creative, to to be good to the earth, more better than you could possibly imagine, and then offer more joy and gratitude than you could contain back to God. I'm seeing God. I'm reflecting God. Uh, uh, The the joy of the earth is being reflected back to God. You see it right in the Genesis account. You've read this before. I never caught it until this week. Check this out. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Here comes a purpose statement. So that, why am I creating them in my image? So they're good looking? No, I'm creating them in my image so that they can rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all creatures that move. So crazy important that he says it again. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule. I made you in my image so that you can rule with my authority and my power. Now, as you know, if you've ever driven on Route 80 and tried to reflect the glory of God, it doesn't go that well many times. We were created to reflect Him, but we chose to replace Him. We have ruled as God would have intended, reflecting His will and love to all of creation and returning the glory due... While we're still so made in his image, that image has been marred. Sin has messed it all up. God's still here, but because I'm sinful, see, I don't, I mean, if I'm honest, I've, you know, if the mirror was supposed to kind of be like this, and I've kind of done this. Hello. <laughs> right? I don't really want to reflect the glory of God. I don't want to build his kingdom with his power. I'd like to build my kingdom with my power. So I've turned the mirror back on myself, and now what I'm reflecting to the driver on Route 80 that cut me off in traffic is me. I'm no longer reflecting God back. I'm reflecting me. I'm spewing me all over creation. I build the kingdom of John. God isn't given up, though. This is so fascinating because you see this concept all through the Bible. Sin mars the image of God. It gets us to refocus the mirror back on ourselves so we're not reflecting God to the world. We're just reflecting ourselves. God doesn't give up. Jesus comes. The Holy Spirit, as a result, is alive and well and, and dwells in believers. And the idea is that God is restoring in you and I the image of God that was distorted. It helps us... REFOCUS THE MIRROR BACK TOWARDS GOD SO THAT WE'RE REFLECTING HIM AND NOT US. THIS IS FASCINATING. JESUS COMES ON THE SCENE, HOW IS HE DESCRIBED? THE SUN IS THE IMAGE OF THE INVISIBLE GOD, THE FIRSTBORN OVER ALL CREATION. THE SUN IS THE RADIANCE OF GOD'S GLORY. JESUS IS RADIATING, GOD IS RADIATING GLORY ONTO JESUS. JESUS IS REFLECTING IT TO ALL OF CREATION. You see it right in the Genesis account. It's in Jesus where we see we're meant to be, who we could be again. He is the radiance of God's glory. Think about the moon. I thought about, you know, have you ever been outside on a winter's night when there's, it, the moon is at its brightest? You know the moon has no, like, energy source that's radiating. The moon only has one purpose, to reflect the radiance and the grandeur of The sun. THAT'S WHAT JESUS DID. HE REFLECTS, the rain, HE RADIATES THE GLORY OF THE FATHER. HE SHOWS EVERYBODY WHAT THE RULE AND REIGN OF GOD WAS SUPPOSED TO LOOK LIKE. JESUS REIGNS THE WAY YOU AND I WERE TO REIGN. THAT'S WHY HE'S WASHING FEET. This is what's God, THIS IS WHAT GOD IS UP TO. ALL OF THIS IS IN THE FIRST CHAPTER OF YOUR BIBLE. All of it, now this is really fascinating, okay? Maybe just for geeks like me, but this is really fascinating. All in chapter one of Genesis. Thousands of years later, a guy named John walks with Jesus and he finds himself exiled on an island called Patmos and he writes the last book that's included in the Bible. When he wrote it, he didn't know it was going to be in the Bible, nor did he know where it would be placed in the Bible. But the last chapter in the last book of your Bible, John gets a glimpse of what things are going to look like when Jesus returns and the kingdom is restored to the way it's supposed to be. Check this out. In that day, there will be no night there because there'll be no need for lamps or sun for the Lord will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. There will never Ever, ever, in the kingdom to come, be images of God because his people will be what they were created to be, reflections of the king. Now, what does this mean practically? Practically. Here's what it means. As the Holy Spirit works in you, if you become a person of faith... Uh, Jesus says that that the Holy Spirit is going to be within you. It's going to be a readjustment of your mirror. So every time you forgive, every time you reconcile, every time you pursue uh, restoration, every time you include somebody who's been lonely, every time you encourage somebody who's down, every time you love somebody who's left out, you are reclaiming the image and reign of God. The reign of God is coming down to earth and the glory of God is raising back when we turn the mirror back. Now that's interesting. That's a purpose statement. Let me give you a second reflection. This one will be quick, but it's really important. Being made in the image of God, it has implications not just for your purpose, but more importantly, for your worth. Hear me on this now. This has profound implications on how we treat each other, And it has profound implications about how we treat ourselves and what we think of ourselves. This is why we are worth when your dignity, when your sense of value is damaged. It's so brutal. That's why the mistreatment of another human being is so serious to God. Genesis chapter 9. And for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. I'm going to demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Why is God going to demand an accounting from somebody who does something to you? Why? Because it's against the law? No, because you're made in the image of God. For the image of God has God made mankind. In the ancient world, kings mattered. They're in the image of God. But God changes the game and he levels the field. Who matters to God? Understand this. Everyone. Everyone matters to God. Because they've been endowed with the Salem, the Imago Dei. They are made in the image of God. This has to change how you live. And Think. You've never looked at another human being, no matter how ragged, poor, unkept, strung out, diseased, desperate, destitute, that they may appear, you have never seen a human being that was not created in the image of God, designed to reign and reflect his glory. Guy on the GWB you passed last week on the way home with the sign, God's image. This is why Jesus, when he comes to earth, he spends so much of his time with all of those on the wrong side of the political and religious empire, prostitutes, tax collectors, drunks, because Jesus does not see the outside. He sees the Imago Day in everyone, even the people, society, culture, and religion doesn't like. This concept that everybody is made in the image of God, that they have ordained of value. This is why Christianity in the early church changed the world. We used to really believe this. This is why they fed the hungry and nursed and healed the sick. It's why they educated the poor, provided for the widows, adopted the orphans. An understanding of the Imago Dei underlied it all. This is why the church has cared over the years so much about abortion and infanticide and senicide because everybody from conception to death has been, reflects the image of God. This is why the church has to care more about those who don't look like us or vote like us. Everyone. Black, white, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. Why? Because each and every one of them contains the imago Dei, the image of God. Jesus saw it, He sought to restore it, and so should we. See, the omago day underlies the oft-repeated teachings on how we're to treat one another. James was the brother of Jesus. Here's what he wrote. He says, "With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in the image of God." He would go on to say, "Brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus, you must not show favoritism. You must not show favoritism. ONE OF THE GREAT TREATISES OF OUR FAITH IS THE BOOK OF ROMANS WRITTEN BY PAUL. AND ROMANS CHAPTER 1 AND ROMANS CHAPTER 2 GET QUOTED A LOT. AND THERE'S A LOT OF SIN LAID OUT IN THERE AND THINGS THAT WE SHOULDN'T DO. BUT THEN THERE'S ALSO THIS CONCEPT IN THERE OF THE GRACE OF GOD THAT that IT IS AVAILABLE TO ALL. AND THAT WAS VERY CONFUSING TO THE PEOPLE at THE DAY WHO DIDN'T THINK THE GRACE OF GOD WAS AVAILABLE TO EVERYBODY. BUT AT ONE POINT PAUL JUST SAYS THIS. HE GOES, LOOK, GOD DOES NOT SHOW FAVORITISM. Why? Because everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts, civilizations, they're mortal, their life is to ours is the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors... Or everlasting splendors. Now, this truth gives purpose to your life as you refocus the mirror and you begin to see my life is to be a reflection of the reign and rule of the good God. But let me make it, re- and it speaks to you of worth, let me make it very real for you. If you came in with somebody today, husband, wife, kid, Look at the person next to you. I know you were fighting with him this morning over the hairdryer. Look at the person next to you. That husband you came in with, angry this morning. Hard to believe I know. <laughs> Made in the image of God. I tell Jonas all the time. <laughs> the daughter you screamed at this week. This one was the one God talked to me about this week, just as an FYI. (laughs) That daughter that you screamed at this week made in the image of God and should have been treated that way. The boss that ticks you off, the one you can't stand anymore, guess what? Image of God. Are you ready for me to rock your world? President Trump, (laughs) image of God. Now those of you that are ticked, let me say this. (laughs) President Obama, image of God. See, you just read this stuff and you don't stop and pause and start to think about what's going on here. Everybody was endowed with the image of God. They have purpose and beauty. As the band comes up, with that in mind, let me ask you a question. What would it look like for you to return, to reangle the mirror off yourself and start to put it back to God, reflecting his reign, his beautiful rule and glory to earth, and then reflecting back to God all the glory and praise that he's due? What would it look like for you to do it and not just talk about it? I mean, could we begin to see each other the way God does? Jesus describes people like lost coins that are of value that God wants found, prodigal sons that are of value that God wants found. He would do anything to get them back. Look, let's just keep it real. Want to get really real? If you started to think that everybody was made in the Imago Day and my purpose was to reflect the reign and rule of God down to earth to show them what it looks like when God rules, would it impact your Facebook post? Would it impact what you like, how you vote, what you think about. I don't know. You pick the pick the topic of the day. The Imago Day would it impact how you talk about the other kids in the cafeteria. What you're willing to forgive, if you're willing to go and pursue again, give someone another chance. I mean, could it fuel you to understand how important that people who are far from God are to God? Maybe provide for you an encouragement to invite them along on the journey. Could it maybe help you to forgive yourself a little bit? You know, you're made in the image of God. I know you're marred, and I know what sin is done, I know. But Jesus still sees the image of God in you. Maybe you need to start seeing it yourself. That's why low self-esteem is so painful. Could it provide context for choosing to serve Grace House guests in a couple of weeks, right? Or maybe going to Guatemala. First year I went to Guatemala, we were out. I was just so impacted by seeing what was happening. I, it, just I don't know. I don't know what the term for it, but I mean, have just, I'd never seen anything like this. People living in garbage and. Uh, there was a guy on the street and a friend of mine went up to the guy on the street and I did what we do in America. I went to shake, shake his hand and I said, my name is John and I put my hand out and he put his head down and demurely pulled his hand away and I thought I had offended him and I asked our hosts what happened he said, he doesn't feel worthy of shaking your hand because he was told he was garbage. See our call is to change this, not just in Guatemala in your families, with your wife, your husband, at your school, in your workplace, in our town. And I'll close with this. Could you imagine what it would be like to create a church pl- where you never, we never, ever, ever have to put up a statue or an image of God because the place is just chock full of them.